Great to see you. Well, we're carrying on in our series in the book of 1 Samuel today, um, as Matteo alluded to earlier. I was feeling all right about my sermon until he gave me that build-up and said it was a really difficult passage for, is it? <laughs> about to find out, aren't we? Um, but yeah, as you can see, we've entitled it, Who Do You Think You Are? Um, now, we, we like an ambiguous title here at Christchurch. Um, I guess there's a few different things that spring to mind when you hear that phrase. Um, Probably the most obvious one being the TV series on BBC One, um, where various celebrities will trace their family history and, and find out a little bit more about their heritage. Um, I think, was there an episode where Danny Dyer found out he was related to King Edward II? Which was, uh, yeah, that was a belter, that one. Um, and I think the connection for us, um, as we look through 1 Samuel, is we're exploring this theme of identity and our place in this world. What do we see ourselves as? I'm also conscious that that phrase, especially around here, also carries other connotations. Um, if he was Mickey Flanagan, the East End comedian, when he was discussing the TV show, he said, sounds like the start of a fight where I come from. <laughs> and to us as Northerners in particular, I think there's a certain sort of confrontational overtone to it, if you like. I'll be honest, it's a phrase I use liberally with my, my children. Um, you know, particularly Martha, who will confidently assert that she knows more than me in just about every field of life. And my only response can be, who do you think you are? And uh, it's funny, just looking at this first part of 1 Samuel chapter 4 that Ash read for us, we see an attitude from the people of Israel that could quite rightly warrant use of the phrase, who do you think you are? So we'll, we'll get into that shortly. Um, but just for the benefit of those, um, if you've not been here for the first few talks, let me just recap sort of quickly where we are. Um, at this point in history, a little bit difficult to pinpoint exactly when it was, probably somewhere in the region of 1000 BC. God's chosen people are transitioning into a monarchy. Now, they've spent a good chunk of their history as kind of a nomadic tribe. They've come out of slavery. They've wandered around for a little bit. And then they've entered the promised land. And for a long period of time, they've been governed by judges. And what we're now working towards in this book is their desire for a king and their transition into a monarchy. And we see this sort of through the eyes of, of lots of different characters in this book, but most notably this guy called Samuel, who sort of God appoints to oversee the transition. And what we've sort of had so far in the first sort of three chapters is a series of quite intense character studies. And, you know, we've had the story of Hannah, Samuel's mum, and her battle with fertility and everything that came with it. Um, social status, relationship with God, marriage, identity, all that stuff. Um, then we move to Eli, the elderly priest. We're confronted with the guilt that God holds him to for the behavior of his sons who abused the temple. You know, we see what he's going to have to endure and what his sons were actually getting up to. And all the while, we've got Samuel in the background, growing up before the Lord in humility, moving towards the purpose that he's been called for. You could kind of think of these first three chapters as, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with some of those great films from the 70s, those sort of character study type films, you know, films like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, you know, or even more recently, like the Joker film, if anybody saw that, you know, the type of film where you see the world through the eyes of the protagonist and you're drawn into their story and their perspective and you sort of go along for the ride with them. But what we get here now at the start of chapter four is like a complete genre change. You know, now we're into like a political blockbuster or like an epic war film. You know, we've gone from, from taxi driver to saving Private Ryan in like the bat of an eyelid. And if you read the text from chapter 3 into chapter 4, 
it feels quite a jarring transition, I think. You know, it's something that you'll find quite a bit in the Bible. You can often jump around between different genres in one book. You know, one minute you're in a drama, the next minute you're in a war film. You know, sometimes people spontaneously break out into song and it becomes musical. Um, you know, and it can sometimes feel a little bit strange. But just keep in mind, as we look at the start of this chapter, the themes that we've explored on a micro level with Hannah and Eli and Hophni and Phineas and all the rest of them, we're now going to continue but in the context with the nation as a whole. You know, we've looked at the motivations of these characters, we've examined their identities and their relationship with God, and now we're going to go from personal identity to cultural identity. You know, rather than personal problems, we're going to political problems that face the nation as a whole. But the themes in the background remain broadly the same. But we're now sort of zooming out, if you like. It might even be helpful to think of Israel as almost like a character unto itself. In this story, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, God refers to Israel as his wife or his bride. You know, that might be quite a helpful idea to carry forward. Israel takes on a sort of collective identity and a distinct approach to God in this text. So that's where we are. So let's dive in a bit deeper and see where the nation finds itself at this particular point in time. As is sort of canon, I've, I've broken this down into three little sections. Um, the first one I've called a response to adversity and an absence of faith. So what we've got in front of us then, chapter four, let's just summarize it really quickly. The Israelites have gone to war against the Philistines. We don't really have time to explore why. There were lots of reasons, theological, political, geographic. We could go on all day. And Israel lose the initial battle and they suffer some pretty heavy casualties in the process. So they turn around and they say, right, we need to get the Ark of the Covenant. You know, once we've got that, we're going to win. So they very casually drag it into their next battle with them. They get super psyched up. They've got their trump card. Now they're going to win. The Philistines get really scared. The earth shakes. And what happens? They lose a second time. Much, much worse this time. They lose 4,000 men the first time around. They lose 30,000 in the second battle. And worst of all, the ark gets stolen. The unthinkable happens. Now, I think it's fair to say it's a bit of an anticlimax, to be honest. It wasn't such a tragedy. It'd almost be funny. Um, I don't know if there's any boxing fans amongst you, but there was quite a big a big boxing match a few, a few months ago between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. They had a trilogy fight, and in the second fight, Wilder was beaten quite badly. And he came out and he made all these excuses after the fight. Someone had spiked his water, his outfit was too heavy, um, his opponent had loaded gloves, and then he changed his whole re regime. He got a new trainer, new diet, new everything. You know, this was going to be, you know, Deontay Wilder 2.0. And what happened? He, he lost again. Worse. It's a bit like what we've got here. You know, they get super psyched. They've got their trump card. They're going to win now. They're going to have their rock moment, their big comeback. And it, it just goes horribly wrong. Now, the casual observer might look at this text and think, you know, I thought these were God's chosen people. Why are they getting beaten up so badly? You know, looking over this text at a glance, you can't really see where they've gone wrong. You know, why has God let this happen? Well, we get our first clue from chapter 3, which Ash spoke on a few weeks ago. We see Hophni and Phineas in charge of the temple, their abuse, their abuse of privilege and the corruption that they've instigated. And now the people are floundering. You know, they've suffered a heavy defeat and they're at a crossroads as to how they're going to respond. And rather than any suggestion of faith 
or prayer or repentance of any kind, they just instantly take matters into their own hands. Not for a single second did it occur to them, you know, maybe it's something we've done. Maybe it's to do with the way that we've allowed God's holy temple to be desecrated. I need to put in quite a large caveat here. I'm not saying that God exclusively punishes us for things we do wrong. You know, God is slow to anger. He wants to forgive us. His wrath and his anger were poured out on Jesus at the cross, yes. But at this specific point in salvation history, the Israelites should have known that God would not have taken the defiling of his temple or the ark lightly. And they've, they've not taken the hint. Instead, they've responded to adversity by trying to take matters into their own hands by ripping the ark out of the temple when they've not been told to do so in the hope that they'll get a quick win. Now, we're going to get to the ark in a little bit more detail shortly, but I just want to pause for a second and think how we can respond to adversity in our lives today. You know, one thing that struck me pretty quickly when I was thinking about this was, as human beings, we love to use hard times that we've had to justify poor behavior. And we love to excuse ourselves. We've all got our reasons. We love to back ourselves into a corner and say we had no choice to do whatever it was. You know, I'm sure if you'd spoken to one of the elders of Israel, after all the dust had settled, he might have said, well, what choice did we have? You know, we, we just lost 4,000 men. You know, he was either trying to use the ark or get killed again. You know, we were on the back foot. We had no other choice. But crucially, this wasn't the response of a nation acted in faith. So at a practical level, the question is, does our faith interlink with our everyday lives and our everyday struggles? Or do we treat faith and life as two separate entities? Do we come here on a Sunday to get an injection of faith so we don't catch the whole thing? And when we walk out the doors after the service, do we revert to self-reliance like the Israelites did here? When things get tough, specifically when the real world hits us, where do we put our faith in our identity? It's easy to deceive yourself. It's easy to convince yourself that the easy option is the best option. But God tells us clearly in the Bible that our faith will be tested and will go through hardship like the Israelites did here. And there's a really lovely passage from the New Testament that juxtaposes this really nicely. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm hoping we might be able to get it. I'm... Now, Peter here is similarly talking to a bunch of people in in real difficulty, scattered exiles, who he describes as having suffered grief and all kinds of trials. And what what does Peter have to say to him? Verse 7, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your faith is refined in times of suffering and difficulty. Your trials will be temporary, but your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when God is revealed. There's a phrase I've often stolen from John Piper. Trials, difficulties, they're not meaningless when you're a Christian. You know, through trials, through defeat in battle, the Israelites had their lack of faith revealed. And they chose to rely on themselves in an arrogant assumption that they could manipulate the ark to their own ends. And the encouragement from Peter is to hang in there because faith is something incredibly precious and it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be looked after. It's of greater worth than gold, he says. So let's not be so hasty as to throw our faith out the window when things go wrong. Secondly, this text shows evidence of a lack of faith, but it also shows evidence of a disordered relationship. 
And to fully comprehend this, we've got to look a little bit closer at the Ark of the Covenant, specifically what it was for versus how the Israelites were choosing to use it. So some of you have been listening to me thus far and thinking, wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that thing that Indiana Jones was chasing around after? <laughs> now, the only thing I can remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark is when the, the Nazis nicked it and they're all stood around and they pull the cover off and they all sort of melt, <laughs> which don't run away with that analogy if that's what you've got in your mind. You know, the Philistines nick it in a few verses time and they don't instantly melt. So I think it's fair to say that some artistic license has been taken by Spielberg there, but our representation is kind of missing the point a little bit. So in simple terms, the art was a wooden box, about three feet long, a couple of feet, two and a half feet wide, something like that. Usually had poles underneath it. It was overlaid with gold and precious material. It had two statues of two angelic, sort of animal-like creatures carved on the top called cherubim. I was quite surprised when I found that out because in my head I had cherubim in my head as like little fat white babies with wings. Apparently that's not the case, I've learned. Um, and they formed part of what was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Had some quite important items inside it, all of which sort of looked back to Israel's difficult birth as they transitioned out of slavery. Had stone tablets in with the Ten Commandments written on it. Had some bread taken from when God sent bread from heaven when they were starving in the wilderness. And it had Aaron's staff which budded, which was symbolic of the fact that just not anyone could approach the ark. He had to have a special designation which in this case was the Levitical priest. Now all of these features, they might seem a little bit strange, but they were there to serve as a reminder of this sacred and loving relationship between God and his people. Now if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 25, when God was first instructing Moses on building the ark, he said something that, to be honest, blew me away the first time I read it. You can see it up there. The Lord's talking to Moses. He said, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering for the building of the ark. That is, you are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. From everyone whose heart prompts them to give. In other words, I can only infer that if no one's heart had prompted them to give, then the ark would never have been built. But it was built to the exact specification that God wanted because the people gave out of love. So this was to be part of the foundation of God's relationship with his people at this time. The very fact that God called it the mercy seat shows that element of his forgiving heart and the people responded in kind. Yes, there was a huge obligation, holiness, reverence. But at his heart, God has always been relational. The heart was a symbol of that relationship. God loved the people. He brought them out of slavery. The people gave out of love in response. But by the time we get to 1 Samuel 4, that, that beautiful relationship has just been horribly compromised. It's become about what the people can gain from trying to use it. You know, there's no mention of this relationship. There's no mention of love or reverence towards God. It's just casually picked up and marched into battle. That's because they've identified themselves and their needs as more important. The relationships become one way. Now, some of you might say to me at this point, well, you know, hang on a minute. The Ark has won plenty of battles for him in the past. You know, why should this occasion be any different? And you'd be dead right, it has. And if you go back to Joshua chapter 3, when God's people first crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, the Ark is used similarly to go into battle and drive out the tribes that were there. 
So I just want to read it quickly, but just as I do, just see if you can spot the difference between Joshua's account of the ark going into battle and the one from 1 Samuel 4. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. Since you have never been this way before, but keep at a distance of about 2,000 cubits, which is roughly half a mile between you and the ark, and do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream, will be cut off and stand up in a heap. See the difference? There was reverence. They consecrated themselves. They didn't dare go within half a mile of the ark. But most importantly of all, God was directing its usage. The ark went ahead of the people. It was front and center. Compare that to 1 Samuel 4, verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the Lord the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, there with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark has gone from the principal focal point in Joshua, and it's reduced to an afterthought by the time we get to Samuel. The Ark went ahead of the people in Joshua. And I, I kind of get this mental image when I'm reading 1 Samuel 4 that the Ark's almost sort of being dragged behind him. You know, it's like used as a last resort after they've already been beaten. This is what they've reduced God to. The text makes a point of saying Hophni and Phineas were there, and I don't think it's too much of an inference to assume that same reverence was lacking from their treatment of the ark than they had with the temple. You now look at the way they were treating the temple, the priestly office in the chapters that we looked at previously. I think it's safe to assume that they were representative of the general complacency being shown by the people towards the ark. It was purely a means to an end for them. They treated it as something that could be manipulated and controlled. And by extension, they saw God as someone who they could hold to ransom by misusing it. You know, and they made the fundamental error of thinking that defeat for them meant defeat for God. So God couldn't possibly allow them to lose. Just utter arrogance resting in their status as God's chosen people, allowing their status to inflate their heads so much as to think it doesn't matter how we treat the temple, it doesn't matter how we treat the ark of God, God's going to back us up regardless. There's a guy called Dale Ralph Davis who wrote a commentary on this. He calls it rabbit's foot theology, which I quite liked. In other words, reducing the ark to a lucky charm with no other purpose than to bring them good luck. 
all about what they can get out of this relationship. Whether it's nice food and women, in the case of Hophni and Phineas in the last chapter, or military victory. In this chapter, the main players in the last couple of chapters have just shown utter contempt towards their relationship with God. And what an absolute contrast from Hannah that we get at the start of the book. He gave the most precious thing to her in all the world as an offering to the Lord. Not about what she could get, it's about what she could give in response to this wonderful gift that had been bestowed upon her, her firstborn son. And I hope at this point your mind's begun to tick a little bit. So I think the application for us is quite a simple one. Most of you probably know what I'm going to say. How do you treat God here today? What is he to you? What is he to me? <coughs> you might be able to give me a theologically correct answer. You might be able to quote verses at me. But when you get out into your day-to-day life, what does the way you live say about your treatment of God? You know, I, I sat and I thought about this for a little bit and I sort of looked out at the world and it became clear pretty quickly that you know, people try and manipulate God in all sorts of ways today. Some people treat him like an insurance policy. Some people treat him like a lottery ticket. There's a lot of people out there who think God exists to make them rich. Some people treat him like a self-help guru. You know, God said some nice things which make me feel better about myself. He gives me good moral advice. Some people treat him as like a sort of spiritual aspirin, if you like. You know, what's the first response you see on social media to any kind of tragedy these days? Oh, pray for so-and-so, pray for whatever, pray for me cat. It's become like a joke, hasn't it? People don't know how to block out the pain, so they resort to prayer as some kind of spiritual painkiller. All so many thousands of years later, human beings are still trying to manipulate God to win wars for them. You know, we've not learned the lesson of 1 Samuel 4, evidently. You know, how many civilizations, armies, cultures have claimed God in support of their cause when their actions have so clearly been at odds with his heart? If you want some further elaboration on this, there's a song by Bob Dylan called With God on Our Side, which I'd highly recommend you go and listen to. Simply put, what is God here to you today? I sat by myself this morning with these notes in front of me. And I leveled the same question at myself. And the answer that I got back was, sometimes I find him a bit of a chore. To be honest, all that obedience, self-denial, it's hard work. But I'm missing the point, like so many others. More importantly, I'm forgetting my place, forgetting the fact that this is a relationship. It's a top-down relationship, yes. But it's still a relationship. If there's anything to take away from the message of the ark, that God loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us, but we're to respond in the right way, out of love and reverence. And as the Israelites found out fatally, it is a dangerous game to try and fit God into our agenda. So let's make sure as God's people here today, we give him, give him his rightful place in our lives. Thirdly and finally, very quickly, how are we going to round this off? Last point, which I've called victory and defeat. So where are we left at the end of this text? Hophni and Phineas are dead. God said they would be, along with 34,000 Israelites, and the ark is gone. The very symbol of God's presence with Israel has gone into the hands of their enemies. The absolute unthinkable has happened to them. And all hope 
appears to be lost. So how do we interpret this for ourselves then? Well, one very important thing to note for us is that although hugely significant to the people of Israel, the ark was only ever intended to be a forerunner of something far greater. The ark was a symbol of the presence of God. And through loads of really complicated rules and rituals and sacrificial systems, God would share relationship with the people at this time, but this pales totally in comparison to the relationship that comes through Jesus Christ. I've got to be very careful here. The ark was hugely important. Something of the presence of God was definitely attached to it. But at the same time, it's not occurred to the people that God can dwell in whatever he wants. You know, they've fallen into the trap of thinking because they've lost the ark, they've lost God himself. Now, look, I don't want to steal Boydie's thunder here, but if you look into the next chapter, look at Phineas' wife and what she calls her child, you can see pretty quick that you know, the people are throwing their towel in, they've given up. You know, again, shrinking God down, the God that created the starry host and putting him literally and figuratively into a box. God can dwell in whatever he likes. And crucially for us, he came to dwell amongst us as a human being so many years later. And as a man, Jesus suffered a fate even more unthinkable than the loss of the ark. Like the ark, he was given over to an enemy, given over to death. <clears throat> like the people of Israel, his followers had lost hope that giving him up was gone. But through his resurrection from the dead, no defeat for us in this life can ever be final. So with that in mind, I just want to come back again <clears throat> to that verse I quoted from Peter earlier. Trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our faith is of greater worth than gold, but only because of the one who receives it. Paul says in Corinthians, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we are pitiable and foolish. Our faith is in vain. We don't place hope in ourselves. We don't place hope in lucky charms in a religious system in some kind of misplaced arrogance. Our faith is in God who came as flesh and blood. A tangible God. And only because of that can we know ultimate victory, even though in this life at times it can seem like all hope is lost. And because of that, we can set our priorities straight and give God his rightful place in our lives. <clears throat>